This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Today's podcast is about COPD physiology. My name is John Fleeton and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada, where I'm a professor of medicine. This year we're celebrating 100 years of the Blue Journal and to recognize this anniversary it's publishing a series of editorials. With us today is Professor Peter Calverley who's Professor of Respiratory Medicine at the University of Liverpool. He's the author of a recent editorial, Physiology and COPD in the Blue Journals. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. A pleasure. Peter, you start your editorial with a quote from L.P. Hartley's book, The Go-Between. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently. Can you expand on why you included this quote? Like many people, I came across this quote from the film of The Go-Between before I read the book, but it seemed to be a very good way of describing how we look back on things, and that seemed an appropriate start to framing this retrospective editorial about COPD and physiology in the blue. Uh, in fact, as becomes clear, and which allowed me to close the editorial, the differences in the past are much less apparent than we think. It's not such a foreign country, even if that's the way it seems initially when you look at all those old articles about TB, uh, uh, particularly about the uh, management of TB, which just don't figure in the same way now. In fact, the ideas and concepts and rigour uh, was all there in the past, so it's no longer such a strange place. Perhaps something that we should remember in a time when there is an increasing suspicion of anything foreign or in the past. So what, in your opinion, are the most important findings in COPD physiology research over the past 50 years? As ever in answering that question, I think it depends where your standpoint is. If you're interested in lung mechanics, then perhaps ideas which were there right at the beginning of the American Review of Respiratory Disease about the importance of expiratory flow limitation and how that translates into uh, everyday activities like measuring the flow volume curve, they've been very important. If your interests are in intensive care, then study of gas exchange and the improved understanding of ventilation perfusion mismatching have been crucial uh, as they have been in terms of understanding the physiology of hypoxemic patients. Uh, if your interests are in ventilatory control then surely the most important thing has been the discovery of how control mechanisms are modified by sleep because that opened up the whole field of sleep and breathing disorders which is now such a large part uh, of the pulmonary physician's life. Maybe the most important advance of all is our ability to translate some of these substantial physiological theories into practical tools that can be applied at the bedside. And how have these findings helped improve patient care? Well, I think having a rational basis 
for the illness that the patient presents with is always a great help. Uh, there's no doubt that making objective measurements with pulmonary physiology has translated into a more rigorous clinical management approach by fellows uh, and physicians nowadays. The widespread use of spirometry, which actually was not the case when you start looking back in the history of the blue, has transformed the way that pulmonary medicine is practiced both in terms of diagnosis and monitoring progress. And that's underpinned by our understanding of the physiology of flow limitation. Uh, for people in intensive care medicine, understanding more about the impact of what happens, particularly the pulmonary circulation, but also uh, to oxygen delivery uh, when you have major VQ abnormalities as you have in ARDS has been vital. Uh, understanding the importance of intrinsic PEEP as a factor that needs to be adjusted for when you're looking uh, at ventilatory support. There are a host of examples, and I could continue, but I won't bore the listener, uh, to say that there have been really substantial translations of basic science ideas into clinical practice. I just hope we can achieve as much in the next 50 years as we have in the last. In your editorial, you discuss three landmark studies, the intermittent positive pressure breathing trial, the nocturnal oxygen trial, and the lung health study. Can you summarize the important long-term impact of these three studies? Well, sometimes large studies are done to show that something doesn't work as much as it does. And these three studies, which were really important government-funded studies in patients with COPD, have had big impacts, both obvious and anticipated from the results of the study, but also, as so often in science and life in general, unanticipated. And the unanticipated effects, I would argue, uh, have been as greater, greater than the primary question that was asked. So the IPPB study really addressed whether or not patients felt better if they regularly use positive pressure breathing. Uh, there was a rationale for that at the time and the answer was in a well-conducted study that it didn't. Uh, by contrast, the nocturnal oxygen therapy trial, which you and I remember well, John, uh, was really important as one of two studies which formed the core evidence for the use of long-term domiciliary oxygen to prolong life in patients with severe hypoxemia. And the crucial thing there was that it showed that the more oxygen you used, the better the result. So nocturnal oxygen therapy was uh, very valuable, but the longer people use their oxygen, the better the outcome. And the lung health study started off to find out whether smoking cessation uh, would really benefit patients with early COPD in terms of the, the development of the disease. And this taught us an important lesson. Uh, it showed us that people who stopped smoking did indeed have a slower rate of decline of lung function, so that yet another reason why people should stop smoking. Not that we're short of those. Uh, but the study itself technically was negative because it was the intervention package that was studied and the outcome uh, by allocation to the intervention of smoking cessation wasn't positive at that stage. But subsequent papers, including one in the blue, showed that by the time you got out to 14 and a half years, yes, there was clearly a benefit from participating in that smoking cessation program. 
So people who were involved in that study uh, would really have initially been told, well, it doesn't matter whether you go to smoking cessation or not, you should just quit. Uh, whereas it became evident over time that there were long-term benefits. Changing our horizons when we look at clinical trials is important. But all of these studies generated other sub-studies which asked lots of ancillary questions uh, about the pathology of COPD, about the abnormalities of control of breathing in COPD, particularly in patients with hypoxemia, and a host of questions in lung health study that range from what's the best way of detecting early onset rate of decline right through to modern genetic studies. So there have been many, many positive outcomes from participation in these trials. So in the past, patients with COPD have been described as either pink puffers or blue bloaters to describe variations in respiratory drive. Are these terms still relevant and, and, and still useful? Or, and can you discuss the relevance of breathing patterns and control of ventilation in patients with COPD? Back in the 1980s, and it was fascinating to revisit stuff which was so current for me when I was a, uh, a fellow, uh, there was a lot of research about why people ha ended up with different uh, blood gas tensions with apparently similar, or at least spirometrically defined similarity, uh, airflow obstruction in patients with COPD. Uh, and the, uh, there was a big debate into, between those who believed it was all down to the pattern of gas exchange, which in one sense was true, uh, and others who felt that this had to be due to how you responded to that abnormality, because it wasn't normal uh, to go along with a persistent hypoxemic state. And a great deal of debate has continued on and off, and still continues, about why that should be. And probably the truth of the matter is that it's a combination of abnormalities of ventilator response, but also intrinsic mechanical abnormalities within the lung that affect gas exchange. And the way in which that translates for the ordinary person, particularly with a person with a tendency to hypercapnia, is the fact that your ventilatory control mechanisms change the way in which you breathe. So uh, that proportionately you have a larger dead space to tidal volume ratio in your normal tidal breathing when you have uh, a, a persistent hypercapnia. Um, in fact, it's more subtle than that, and uh, in some ways the problem has become more of historical interest now than uh, of frontline clinical importance. Uh, the number of people who present with severe hypoxemic and hypercapnic COPD in a stable state is quite small. It was always small, but it's got a lot smaller. And that's because many of the original people we saw had occult cardiac disease, which is now better treated. Uh, it's still a fascinating physi physiological problem, uh, but I'm not sure yet we've got to the bottom of which is first chicken or the egg. But the 80s did show us that the pattern of breathing you adopted modulated your blood gas tensions because it interacted between uh, your respiratory control system and your ventilation perfusion mismatching. And that's the story of physiology all over. It's interaction and dynamic states in systems that determine the outcomes. Now, there have been many studies over the last 50 years assessing patients with COPD both during exercise and sleep. Can you summarize the most important findings and their relevance to patient care? 
Well, there's another substantial and challenging question. Uh, let's try and separate them, because although there have been a few studies that have examined exercise and sleep, they've usually highlighted that the changes, at least physiologically, that you see in the two are really rather different. In terms of exercise, and in connection with COPD particularly, uh, the most important body of work has come from Kingston, Ontario, uh, led by Dennis O'Donnell, and is now a uh, frankly world-famous group of exercise physiologists. And they've helped us understand why patients with COPD develop exertional breathlessness and how this relates to dynamic changes in their lung mechanics. A lot of people talk about dynamic hyperinflation, but the crucial factor that happens when you're unable to regain your end expiratory lung volume at the end of an expiratory period is that your lung volume rises and steadily you approach a critical threshold which is close to the inspiratory reserve volume where breathlessness becomes acute and debilitating and causes people to stop exercising. Exploring how that occurs, in what severity of obstructive lung disease, uh, and what are the exceptions, has provided substantial insight into the role of lung mechanics and exercise physiology. Uh, using all of the uh, complex physiology, which was described in the 50s and 60s, to good effect to solve a practical problem. And of course there's been a lot of studies that show how drugs interact with these mechanical abnormalities uh, to improve exercise capacity and patient well-being. From the point of view of sleep, you're dealing really with the obverse. You're dealing with a state of naturally acquired hypoventilation and the interaction that that has, particularly with pre-existing respiratory disease. Uh, and in terms of sleep and breathing, we've seen how falls in respiratory drive during sleep can have substantial consequences on gas exchange uh, and significant changes, of course, due to the interaction of the upper end was something which really was only studied in the 80s and 90s uh, and the lower respiratory tract. Uh, so in practical terms these have had a lot of impact in terms of defining different sorts of sleep and breathing disorders, obstructive and central sleep apnea, showing that these are different from changes which occur in COPD patients where sleep apnea does occur as an overlap condition but isn't the norm uh, and where uh, data of this sort were those which were published for the first time in the Blue Journal. So the Blue Journal's had a large role in setting the agenda uh, of our understanding of sleep and breathing disorders as it has in terms of abnormal exercise physiology. Now in the past there was much research published on small airways disease, closing volume and, and respiratory muscle fatigue and COPD. Are these still important factors in understanding COPD? Fashions come and go, um, and there was undoubtedly a major interest when I began my research career in small airways disease and tests which could detect it. And the wise people then had realised that what you really want to do with a condition like COPD is detect it early. And they'd seen that the earliest changes that occurred were in the smaller peripheral airways. Uh, a lot of work done by uh, Peter Macklem initially uh, looking at that and Jim Hogg. Uh, and people were therefore really keen to find sensitive tests in life that would identify the disease early and perhaps uh, allow earlier interventions. 
Now, that hope largely uh, proved illusory, simply because of the poor reproducibility of the tests which were studied at the time, and there were a variety of them. Frequency dependence of compliance, density dependence of gas exchange, closing volume, uh, all of these were studied in great detail. But of course they were limited by the technology and the techniques available. This was a period where things were worked out on chart recorders with pencil and a ruler, uh, rather than using automated data capture systems and calculating results on large numbers of observations. In any case, they fell from fashion, and for a long time studies of small airways disease were unpopular. But what goes around comes around, and now, particularly in the era of sophisticated CT scanning, we see that people are proposing new tests of small airways function, uh, which are based on imaging, uh, and which do appear to be attractive, particularly parametric response mapping. Uh, the group from COPD Gene have done some important work with this, and I think this is being taken forward in the spiromics study. So small airways disease is very much back with us because the need to identify disease early has never really gone away. Respiratory muscle fatigue, by contrast, was a fascinating physiological concept which people believed might represent a chronic disease state, and to cut a long story short, it doesn't. It represents a limiting condition which, if you impose this on the respiratory system, eventually the respiratory muscles will fail. This is really important if you work in an intensive care unit, particularly if you're dealing with people with circulatory compromise, as well as increased respiratory load. But out with some fairly specific situations, at the limits of life and survival, respiratory muscle fatigue represents a boundary condition, something which you approach but then take other action to avoid, not least develop severe breathlessness, uh, change your breathing patterns, try and modify your behaviour. Uh, so it's there is a very useful concept, but not in the same way perhaps that small airways have, uh, where there's still a need to deal with that, whereas I'm not sure we need tests for respiratory muscle fatigue now. So has our understanding of COPD physiology helped guide the ventilator management of patients in respiratory failure? Um, Following on from what I was saying about respiratory muscle fatigue, there is a connection between our understanding of respiratory physiology and the way in which COPD patients have been managed on ventilators. Uh, studies uh, of breathing pattern and uh, intrathoracic pressure uh, showed, to the surprise of many, that actually patients were developing pressure and inspiratory pressure before flow began uh, and that this represented a threshold loading condition described by Pepe and Marini uh, as intrinsic PEEP. This may sound uh, a fairly commonplace idea now because it's been around for 35 or more years but when it arrived uh, on the scene people began to rethink what was happening when people were trying to wean from ventilation and how much respiratory work was being done to no good effect. 
That changed the way in which ventilator circuits were managed, it changed the way in which pressure support was provided, and ultimately led into a whole era of non-invasive ventilatory support. One of the earliest reports of using a nasal mask to provide uh, non-invasive ventilatory support was also in the Blue Journal back in the 80s uh, in patients with neuromuscular disease, a group of people where hypoventilation is the predominant physiological abnormality uh, and who often adapt well provided the ventilator system used for delivering non-invasive ventilation is reasonably comfortable. That was a major step forward to realise you could adapt technologies that have been developed for delivering CPAP to deliver ventilatory support to patients who were awake. And of course that's had big impacts in terms of weaning protocols. So from these diverse observations about lung mechanics, practical changes that influence the normal day-to-day -day activities of an intensive care unit have followed. And people will be hard-pressed sometimes to work out when they first learned that these things were important. So we've talked about the last 50 years. What do you think the priorities are for COPD research in the next 10 years? And where do you think the next major advances will take place? I think it is, it would be nice to say that we were going to solve the problems of COPD in the next 10 years, but sadly I don't think that is the case. I said earlier that what goes around comes around, and I think on this occasion uh, we will see a renewed interest in COPD at an earlier stage of disease, because it is true that whilst we've made great progress in managing people with advanced disease, what we cannot do is provide adequate correction of their illnesses. What we would really like to know is how to identify those people who will pursue a more progressive natural history. And I think a lot of studies, multidisciplinary studies, uh, will be focused on doing that. My personal bet is that the real gains are going to be made in better imaging and actually the continued application using novel, more robust approaches of old physiological principles. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that small airways uh, disease defined by changes in forced oscillation, uh, again an actually quite long established physiological method, uh, will, will be very useful when taken together with imaging in identifying early disease. And if we do that, then we can start looking at the biochemistry and immunology of those conditions and understanding better what is going on. I'm afraid I don't think genetics are going to play such a large role in that aspect of uh, COBD research. At the other end of the disease spectrum, I think it's very likely, again, that imaging is going to be important, as is old-fashioned physiology, but this time in terms of identifying patients who will benefit most from medical lung volume reduction, which is an area which I think is going to make progress. And of course, we all have high hopes uh, for the possibility of tissue regeneration and associated advances in transplantation. And it is possible that in that time frame we will see significant improvements there, but I'm not sure even in 10 years those will translate to changes that we will be recommending for our patients. I think the best hope for them is earlier identification, better characterization, and better treatment if the disease progresses. Peter, many thanks for doing this. Uh, to the listener, uh, to read the article discussed in this podcast, 
please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can subscribe and stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Uh, thanks again for listening and have a great day. Thank you.